Support for the Velo News Podcast this week is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the Mayo Jean when it comes to men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. So you can join over 2 million men worldwide who've trusted Manscaped with this exclusive offer to you, 20% off and free worldwide shipping when you use the code VELONEWS. That is uppercase VELONEWS at manscaped.com. I'm actually trying the Lawnmower 4.0 out this week. Well, I may be a Cat 5 when it comes to uh, manscaping, the Lawnmower 4.0 has me feeling like a world tour superstar. Why? With the 4.0, we're talking about a cutting edge ceramic blade, a 4000K LED spotlight to help you see where you're going, additional guard lengths from one to four to help you customize your look, wireless charging, and the advanced skin safe technology to reduce groin grooming accidents. Nobody wants that. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code VELONEWS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code VELONEWS. All uppercase VELONEWS. Unlock your confidence, always use the right tools, and get the job done with Manscaped. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from the actual Velo News World Headquarters here in Boulder, Colorado. I came into the office today. Not too many people here. A lot of boxes, a lot of empty cubicles, lots of people still working from home. But we're still podcasting because it's the Tour de France. And every 12 hours, there is another huge, enormous story that happens that uh, forces us to huddle the wagons and flip open our laptops and write and write and write and podcast and podcast and podcast. And of course, today is no different. We just finished watching stage five. That, of course, the individual time trial and the GC has been completely upended. Tade Pogacar stamped his authority, winning the stage, coming very close, but not taking the yellow jersey, but really taking a huge step forward in the GC battle. And now after five stages, it really looks like he is in pole position to defend. We also saw some great rides for Stefan Kung, bad rides for Richard Carapaz, and Matthew Vanderpool continued to turn heads in his debut Tour de France. We're going to talk all about the ITT and the fallout from it. Um, we're also going to hit on the big news story that also broke today, which is that French authorities have reportedly arrested the fan who caused that stage one crash. Yes, that's right. This is the alleged woman with the Omi Opi stage, the sign who knocked over Tony Martin and dominoes fell over. And um, ASO wants to sue this person. There's all sorts of intrigue about what happens to this uh, poor, if careless fan. And we're going to uh, voice our hot takes on this news story and then get to some of the other big stories that are lighting up the airwaves. Um, second part of the show, we have uh, we have interviews to get to. We have Michael Woods uh, coming to us from the start of stage five. And we also have Jonas Vingagor. That's right. Jonas Vingagard, if you are reading it in proper English. But Jonas Vingagor, he is uh, with Jumbo Visma and he's talking about what has happened to the poor team with all these crashes and Primoz Roglic hitting the deck and what it means for them going forward. So thanks to Andrew Hood for getting those interviews on the ground. Let's get to the stories today. On the line, I have co-hosts Sive O'Shea and Jim Cotton. Both of you and myself have just finished watching the individual time trial. Um, before we get to the results of the individual time trial, I have a bike watching question for you. Um, 
Jim, we'll start with you. What is your strategy for watching an individual time trial and not getting bored to tears? Jim, go for it. Uh, I, I just embrace the uh, the stats on the uh, the nerdy pro cycling stats ticker, which gives you like up, kind of updates every sort of ten seconds on how fast they're going and where exactly they are on the road. And uh, to know, I feel like I'm in a NASA space center or something. So I just uh, I just embrace embrace the nerdery for a few hours and, and turn off the commentary. I like it, embracing the nerdery. How about you, Sive? I mean, we watch time trials all the time. We're always whinging about how boring they are. Um, what is your strategy for making them like interesting and tolerable? Um, well, first of all, don't go in too early. I think if you uh, if you go in too early, you're just putting yourself in for a world of pain. Um, you know, don't be afraid to kind of dip in and out. Um, I'm a bit like Jim. I do like a bit of the nerdery. I like following the um, the live timing and seeing all of that moving up and down and changing and um, kind of trying to. Um, yeah, follow follow what the riders are doing. Um, social media helps as well. You know, a few funny jokes, a few memes. Um, catch, catching up on that, I think, helps to um, yeah to keep me entertained, especially sort of in that in that lull in the middle where you often the the big time trialists have already gone out and the uh, GC favorites are still kind of waiting to come out. Yeah, that's what I do. I think that um, Twitter plays an important role, very important role in time trial stages because it's like a lot of times I'll have Twitter open during a normal race, but I'll just kind of be like glancing at it every now and again. But during ITTs, I'm engaging. I'm coming up with tweets. I'm like, ah, I'm bored. I need to like express some opinion or whatever. And so Twitter becomes like this life raft of entertainment during an ITT. And uh, today was no different until, like you said, Sive, those last few riders started to go. You know, Stefan Kung had this great ride. God, we see so many good performances by him that end up in like second or third places. And then as the GC favorites started to take over, Pogachar was setting these really fast intermediate time splits. And after, you know, two thirds of the way through this thing, it really seemed like he was going to uh, take this. Um, Jim, first of all, I mean, what's your assessment of Pogachar's ride and what this means for the uh, overall GC picture? Well, Pogachar, as we saw last year, he's, uh, he's, he's a very good time trialist, but. Perhaps nobody expected him to be as good as he was today. He took a ton of time on all the favourites, like one minute 40 up on Roglic and more on the guys from Ineos. And uh, I mean, now he sits, he's not on the top of the GT, but he's second and he's got such a big gap that it's, it's become his race to lose. And for Roglic, Thomas and Carapaz, it, it's about how they can regain that and not let let Pogachar get off the leash. It, it, it is true. This race is now Pogachar's to lose. One of the storylines, though, that I think is really interesting to come out of today as it pertains to the GC is that now Pogachar is going to have to play defense. And last year, of course, with his Tour de France win, it came after, you know, days of playing offense. He was the attacker. He was the one who was waiting in second place and really pushing Roglic and then taking the jersey on the final stage. And now he's in pole position and he's going to have to use his legs and his team to actually defend. So, you know, if he actually ends up winning this thing, 
he's going to have to do so in a much different way, which I think is actually really interesting to see. As bummed as I was to see guys like Garrett Thomas and Richard Carapaz and Roglic having, you know, mediocre to okay time trials, um, the fact that Roglic or that Pogachar knocked it out of the park and is now in a position where we really is going to have to defend things. Um, to me, is is really interesting. Uh, Saif, what's your take? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I think, um, yeah, I didn't expect Pogacar to pull out quite as much time on on everybody else as he um, as he did. Uh, I think the the most interesting thing is though the kind of up and downs of the um, Ineos kind of group um, until he, uh, this morning. Uh, Richard Carapaz was kind of their the kind of remaining big hope after um, Geraint Thomas uh, pull, uh, dislocated his his uh, shoulder in that crash. Um, but Carapaz, he had a horrible ride um, today and now he's he's almost two minutes back. He's just four seconds ahead of um, Roglic, who obviously has had a tumultuous start to the tour, shall we say. Um Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, he's had a, he's had a tumultuous start to the to the tour, and um, yeah, the, it's I think it's a difficult time now for for Ineos. Um, they've got to really figure out their their game plan going forward because this um, big kind of hitter of a team is really struggling already, and we haven't even got to the mountains. Yeah, you have Richard Carapaz ninth place at 144, Garant Thomas 12th place at 154, you know, only 10 seconds behind Carapaz. So really those two dudes are basically equal as team leaders because of where they are in the standings. But, you know, yeah, they're almost two minutes back on where Pogacar, or a minute 30 back on where Pogacar is at this point. Um, as we look at the top 10 to top 15 with, you know, riders who really have good GC hopes. I think you would look at Tadej Pogacar in second place as obviously the big favorite. Alaphilippe, even though he said he's not riding for GC, I mean, he's kind of in second proverbial GC place right now. Lachenko's up there, whether or not he can hold on. I have I have my doubts about that. Rigoberto Uran quietly making a run for the podium as sort of the second or the third true GC guy, you would say, at 129. And then uh, Jonas Vingagor as sort of an untested GC in eighth place, just a hair of Carapaz. But um, yeah, I mean, things have completely been shaken up. Now the onus is on everyone else, Ineos, Jumbo Visma, all these other teams to have to go on the attack and how that what that means for Tade Pogacar uh, is now that's now going to be the story of this race so I'm really interested to see how it's going to play out um, a couple other things before we move off of this uh, time trial I you know I a few months ago about a month ago I had a phone call with Kristen Armstrong, three-time Olympic champion uh, for our Olympics issue. And she basically talked me through how she watches an individual time trial. Uh, you know, she really studies the course. She's done a million of them. And she has these telltale things that you're looking for. And one of them is, you know, sort of being the body language doctor and watching each rider and looking at their um, p- their posture and most importantly, their head. And basically, like, is their head staying upright in arrow or is it dropping down? And is it like, you know, moving side to side? And... I felt like Pogacar, I mean, he looked 
just straight as an arrow the entire time. Karapaz was the one that was like, oh boy, you know, they they cut to him and he was kind of swinging around on the bike and his head was drooping down and he really looked uncomfortable. And, you know, the fact that there's this final individual time trial looming at the end of the race, that's a flat one too. Um, boy, you know, he did not look good in this in this flat time trial. So I think this really is going to put the onus on him to be an attacker. Um, so Richard Carapaz is going to be going on the attack. Um, Vanderpool, this is, I think, his second individual time trial of the entire year. And he had a great one. He held on to the yellow jersey. Uh, he finished fifth overall, um, 31 seconds down on Pogacar, right behind Wout van Aert. Of course, Wout van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool finishing right together what would a bike race be without those two uh, slotted in right next to each other? Um, Saif, first of all, what do you make of Vanderpool's amazing time trial ride today? And what can you tell us about the very interesting and intriguing backstory behind Vanderpool, his team? They were like searching around for equipment. Um, it sounds like like a lot went into this ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's actually his third um ITT this year. He uh, he rode the final stage of um, Torreno and then the opening stage of Swiss. So they were his two kind of previous efforts. Um, and I was looking into this just before in Swiss, which was 10.9K. Um, he lost, I think it was 38 seconds to Stefan Kung. 38 seconds. He lost, I think, 12 seconds to Kung today. Um, so like, that's just an immensurable, um, kind of measurable improvement. Um, like, yeah, his ride today was phenomenal. I mean, I think I might go as far as say it was his best ride this year, perhaps one of the best rides of his career, given that like, this isn't his forte, um, you know, to be able to pull a performance out like that is, is incredible. Um, yeah, and it was it was clear kind of from from this morning when the story started coming out that he was quite determined to try and keep this yellow jersey for at least another one, maybe two days. Um, and his um, apparently his bike uh, supplier Canyon were very keen to have that as well. Um, and so the team manager went on this massive mission to try and track down some um, some better wheels uh, from. Uh, Princeton Carbon Works. I'm sorry, tech is not my um, area of expertise, but yeah, Princeton Carbon Works was ringing around and um, he managed to uh, get hold of somebody there who he'd been on a, a bike ride with last summer. And he, uh, that guy then managed to buy a pair of sw- spare wheels from Cameron Verf because Ineos have bought like a whole bunch of them. Um, so he bought a spare pair from Cameron Verf. They got a Dutch hotelier who lives in the Pyrenees to so then drive 900 kilometers. Um, and uh, yeah, they spent, I think, Matthew van der Poel said they were up until midnight trying to kind of establish the, his best position on the bike. Turns out they only used one of those wheels. Um, so they spent an awful lot of money and the guy drove a very long way for one wheel. Um, they actually had the uh, team, team sponsor wheel on the front. It was the rear wheel that was the... Um, the the non-sponsor wheel that was all taped up but um yeah they've they've really kind of 
gone to town in an attempt to keep this yellow jersey. Boy, if you're Cameron Wirth, if you just got uh, just kind of got ratted out there selling team gear on the internet to some random. And I, I wonder if like the Ineos riders now are going to have to be like ask for identification when they're selling to someone and be like, are you sure you're not, um, you know, your name isn't Audrey Vanderpool? You look kind of like him. I know you're I know you're telling me your name is Dave Johnson. But uh, how do I not know? How do I not, you know, know you're not part of the like Wout Van Aert or Matthew Vanderpool camp and you're buying these special fast wheels? Uh, some big advertising for uh, this wheel company, too. I'm sure every like Cat 3 and age group triathlete out there is now going to be scouring the internet for wheels of their own because uh, they think it might help them do well in their local triathlon. Um, something I think it worth note, though, with this performance is, yes, we can say, okay, there was a fast wheel and there was this, you know, overnight search to like pry some wheels out of Cameron Wirth. Um but like in these other time trials, do you think Matthew Vanderpool like is one of the reasons why Matthew Vanderpool hasn't had performances like this in individual time trials is because yeah, he's kind of gone into them being like, well, this is an individual time trial. I'm not supposed to do well here. I am supposed to surrender the jersey. You know, I'm supposed to be a winner of hard classic style punchy stages and cobblestone stages and individual time trials. Eh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll just do what I need to do to like have an okay finish. But in this race with the yellow jersey on the line, knowing that they can hold it up until Friday, maybe even Saturday. Do we think that maybe this is just a, a case of like the motivation being greater than where it's been in the past? Uh, Jim, what do you make of this? Yeah, I, I would say that the the power of the yellow jersey is is real for sure. And, you know, holding that for just even one more day is, is a massive thing for any rider, let alone you know a tour rookie like Vanderpool. And, and the fact that, Canyon and um, Alpecin Phoenix was prepared to get this wheel shipped over just shows how important he is to the team and to Canyon and also how important the yellow jersey is to them. But you can't forget with Van der Poel that, you know, he's honed his form through the last 10 years by doing hour-long cyclocross races, which is just an hour of pain. And and that's what a time trial is. Well, today's was like 35 minutes of pain or something. And I think Van der Poel just had the motivation. He's got the pain threshold. And like he said, he's he's not really tried time trialing before. So you never know. This, this might be more than a one-off uh, performance. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with um, with Jim. Like the there's a power to having the yellow jersey. Nobody's going to... Um, relinquish it that easy. I mean, any leader's jersey, but particularly the Tour de France leader's jersey. And I think the effort with which the team went to get that extra equipment and the late night for him and the late night for the mechanic, you know, you've, you're going to have all of that in the back of your head. And that's going to be an extra driver on top of wanting to, you know, make sure that you keep that yellow jersey. So he has it by eight seconds over Pogacar. And in the broadcast, they had some great images of Pogacar watching Vanderpool's, you know, final kilometer to kilometer and a half and knowing that it was going to be close and kind of edge of his seat. And uh, Pogacar actually looked pretty content and happy when Vanderpool did hold on to the jersey. I think he said afterwards that, you know, hey, it's good for Matthew. I like him. He's a, he's a good dude. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't any animosity, which... 
as a hardcore sports fan, I'm a little concerned by this because I want my uh, I want my cyclists to be big rivals and to sort of frown and grimace when they don't win and get the ultimate prize. But Pogacar seemed like he was pretty content with this. Uh, but that begs another question that I have, which is how long do we think Vanderpool is actually going to hold this jersey? Because we have uh, you know a hilly stage coming up on Friday, mountain stage coming up on Saturday. Um, Jim, how long do you think Vanderpool ends up holding this jersey? And uh, the question looming in the back of my mind is throughout this entire tour, we've been told that, you know, Vanderpool doesn't want to burn his legs out because he has the Olympic cross-country mountain bike race coming up. Um, Do we think that this is going to like scupper his plans for Olympic gold? Or do we think he's still kind of in the safe zone of putting out effort to hold this thing? I'm putting on my my tinfoil hat and coming up with a a theory, which I've just thought of, is that he could legitimately win tomorrow's sprint stage if he's lucky. He could win Friday's classic style stage. And then he could abandon on Saturday, which is the first mountain stage of two at the weekend, and then freshen up for the Olympics mountain bike race. Ooh, I like this. This is a hot, hot take. This is a good theory. Sai, what do you make of Jim's tinfoil hat wearing uh, take? Uh, it's, it's an interesting theory. Um, I think uh, I'm, I'm not sure that Vanderpol will win tomorrow. Um, I think it's a bit too flat for Vanderpol. I think that's going to be a perhaps a Cavendish, um, Sagan maybe face off. Uh, Tim Merlier, his teammate actually, Tim Merlier is probably going to be the the favourite for that stage. Um, Friday he could uh, potentially win. There's that challenge of the second cat climb um, that he'll have to to tackle, but that I think should be should be okay for him. He's almost a hundred percent going to lose the jersey on Saturday. Um, I, yeah, I would probably bet a large sum of money on that. Um, whether or not he'll he'll quit on Saturday, I think he might stick it out until the rest day at least um, and then bow out gracefully then. It depends on how he's feeling. It depends on how tired he is. Um, but I don't think, I definitely don't think he's going to go to the end. Yeah, I, that's the thing I come back to too is I don't see him going to the end, but I do wonder if there's going to be online chatter of like, oh, you are disrespecting Zatilla if he does drop out early. You know, Caleb Ewan t- caught some grief from the old heads for bowing out of the Giro early. Uh, but do you guys think anyone is going to go so far as to like criticize Matthew Vanderpool for bailing early on the Tour de France? There's heavy precedence for, for sprinters departing midway through um, the Tour de France, particularly in, in an Olympic year. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a few others. So uh, if they're going to criticize Matthew van der Poel, then they're probably going to have to do it for a, um, a few riders. I think uh, if anybody, if the only kind of people I can imagine possibly criticizing van der Poel are like old, old French guys that have been watching the Tour for the last 60 years. But after he won a stage and dedicated it to his French grandfather, Poudidor, I, I don't think he can do much wrong in, in the French nation's eyes. So I think he'll get away with an early abandon. Oh, Jim, that's very astute of you. Some good uh, PR and some sort of greasing the skids for an early departure and not getting criticized by all this goodwill towards the French cyclists. Um, more tinfoil hat wearing on the part of Jim, but I think this is very this is true. This is very astute. Uh, all right, guys, it was a thrilling Time trial. We saw a GC shakeup. It has completely refocused this Tour de France on whether or not Tade Pogacar can swat off his rivals like a bunch of flies. Let's move on to the other big story of the day. And of course, that is that French authorities have reportedly found and arrested the fan who caused the big crash on stage one. Oh, 
the lady with the Omi Opie sign. And uh, ASO wants to sue this person. There's talk of a big fine, potentially some jail time. Uh, we did a roundtable today about whether or not suing this person and punishing them to the extent that ASO hopes to punish them is a good idea. Uh, Saif, we'll start with you. I mean, what's your take on the proposed punishment and some of the wider context in other sports. I know you have some uh, experience with the Isle of Man motorcycle TT here. I mean, it was not you who like wandered into the uh, TT, but it sounds like there's precedent here. Yeah, no, there's um, there's definitely precedent. I think um, in terms of suing her, I think perhaps uh, that, that may be for show for ASO. I think ASO should probably get their house in order before they start suing people kind of left, right and center. Um, you know, they, they've, they've made their own mistakes that could, uh, be suable, you know, namely maybe, um, that incident on Mont Ventoux where they, they weren't able to, uh, control the situation sufficiently. And we saw three riders hit the deck. Um, but in terms of the punishment, I think, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with like, a nominal um, fine for, for this fan. I know, I, 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 don't, I assume that, you know, she didn't mean it, you know, she was just trying to do something nice for her grandparents and say hello on the telly. But, um, you know, I think some sort of punishment will be a, a, hopefully a deterrent towards other people that might be inclined to do something like that. Because, you know, in this situation, we were quite lucky. Um, the, the riders were going at relatively low speed for them. It's still pretty high speed when, when you get hit by one of them, you know, she could have been seriously injured if, uh, you know, Tony Martin had actually clipped her harder. More riders could have been quite badly injured in that accident. So I think some sort of nominal fine wouldn't be kind of, too too strong in my opinion as you said you know from i live in the isle of man i've grown up here we've got a massive motorbike race the tt which happens every two years the roads completely closed down when the racing's on obviously the riders are going significantly faster they're going around uh i'd say about well they the the average around the course is somewhere between 180 and 200 miles an hour but when those roads are closed you are not allowed to to step on the road. If you do, you could be you could be uh, put in prison. Um, and it's happened before. It happened a couple of years ago when um, somebody decided to step out into the road. They'd had a few beverages. Uh, they might have been alcoholic beverages. And uh, yeah, they, they got in trouble with the law and went to prison. I think prison would be far, <laughs> a massive step too far in this particular incident. But, um, you know, there has to be some sort of measures in place. Or otherwise, you know, it, chaos. <laughs> The Isle of Man doesn't mess around. Jim, uh, you remember that news story last year during the COVID shutdown, undoubtedly, when a uh, person on a jet ski was trying to jet ski from mainland to the Isle of Man, and they were apprehended by the authorities and thrown in jail for jet skiing. So if you listeners find yourself in the Isle of Man, A, don't uh, get drunk and wander into the middle of the TT, and don't try to jet ski your way uh, past a quarantine. Bad things are going to happen to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good idea. Jim, I mean, what's your take on this? You know, we went back and forth. What do you think an appropriate punishment for this person who disrupted the Tour de France uh, should be? Whilst I agree that ASO has to uh, has to be seen to be doing something, I, I just don't know how a kind of a fine of a thousand euros or whatever 
can can be appropriate and i certainly don't think that a prison term is appropriate either but i think as as a couple of us said on the round table the, the amount of abuse this woman got on social media already is is enormous and i think that public humiliation is enough but i think i think that aso and race organizers in general can take a lot more per, like responsibility for ensuring other parts of racing are safe like ensuring the routes are safe the the courses are safe um uh, with regards to personal action against this this poor woman i i don't know what can be done to be honest but i think she's she's probably suffered quite a lot already maybe she could be forced to do some like psa adverts you know like um, getting on the television and being like you know hey the tour de france is coming up don't do what i did uh i am the public face of being a bad fan now and like we'll you know have to like go on with that forever and ever um personally i think that on the theme of PSAs, that the current kind of tour PSA about fans kind of being respectful to riders is a little bit too soft. I think they could kind of do something more um, and actually perhaps use a video like this um, or, you know, a video like uh, Nibbly being taken down a few years ago um, on Alp Duez to actually show what happens when, you know, these things occur. Um, you know, because sometimes, you know, if you if you just have this sort of bland, oh, you know, please respect the riders. You know, we're we're doing our job, and you know, we're here for for your entertainment. Um, it's most people aren't really going to pay attention to that. Yeah, I mean, maybe something that shows, you know, Nibali's spine fracture or the broken bones and destroyed bikes and everything that came from this would be an appropriate way. Uh, to go about doing it. When I was thinking about a punishment for this person, I don't know, I had like Game of Thrones on the mind, so I was thinking about all the terrible punishments used in Game of Thrones, like flaying or uh, exile. Um, But the one that came to me was the very, the walk of atonement that uh, Cersei Lannister had to do and walk through and have all these fans shame her and yell shame and throw like rotten garbage and stuff at them. So maybe they could try and do something like that during one of these tour stages and have this poor woman march ahead of the caravan and have everyone like yell shame. And, uh, and that would be enough. And then we could go back to our lives and let this poor woman go back to her life and uh, spend time with her Omi and Opie without having to disrupt a international sporting event to do so. Um, before we get out of here, uh, we have a lot going on. We have uh, one more podcast episode coming to you this week. That will be tomorrow, Thursday, before we pick things up again next week as well. But Sive and Jim, you both have been turning some amazing feature stories around for VeloNews.com with uh, interviews and behind the scenes reporting. And Jim, I want to start with you because you've done some great stuff around Mark Cavendish and his return to the top. We saw him win the stage yesterday. And you've been doing some reporting around you know, his new trainer he's working with, how some of his team teammates have factored into that win. Um, first of all, what can you tell us about, you know, the fact that he's working with a new trainer, he's kind of had to redo the way he's preparing for the races and how that's impacted uh, his, his performance and his form? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I spoke to Cavendish's coach uh, at Quickstep today, uh, a Greek guy called Vasilis Anastopoulos. And uh, he, he basically was telling me how, well, first, firstly, um, he just returned Cavendish to the, to the obvious sort of thing of playing to his strength. He he said that his Cavendish's former teams had been trying to you know make him more of an all round athlete so he could survive over the climbs and he was more rounded. But 
uh, this coach said that you know Cavendish is a sprinter. He's he's not going to last over a a ten k climb. So it doesn't make a difference if he lasts to eight kilometers or if he lasts to three kilometers. And he just stripped it straight back to you know a real sprint focused approach and did a lot of track work, which is what made Cavendish the great that he was you know 10 years ago when he was also riding olympic track and um he's also kind of saying how a, a lot of cavendish's return has been a, about his a, a mental journey as well about kind of rebuilding his confidence re- and making him happy again and a lot's been made about how cavendish's return to quick step and this sort of belgian kind of bromance he's got with lefevre uh, the team boss kind of really, really helped him. And um, that has been a huge part of his journey. And then once he started getting these wins at small races, even off the back of, you know, master lead outs from guys like Michael Mwoku, that got his confidence rolling. And then when the confidence was there, like the form just kept on coming and coming. And it's a really interesting insight into the whole journey of the last eight months of, of how he's rebuilt Cavendish and um, that's up on the website now, so you should go and have a read. That is really interesting. I remember in 2017, 18, one of the big knocks against Cavendish was that he, you know, he was under threat to not make the time cut in some of these mountain stages, especially the short and intense mountain stages. And so I, I, it doesn't surprise me that his teams at that time were like, hey, we need to work on your climbing. You need to be able to survive these mountain stages. And it just so happens that this tour where the mountains don't come until, you know, fairly later than we've seen might end up being the perfect one for him to have switched to a more sprint focused uh, training regimen. Yeah. I've got, got to agree with that. And um, I, I didn't, I didn't um, question, question uh, the quick step guys about, about that ability to meet the time cut, but it, it seems like they're just thinking, you know, he's a sprinter. Let's just get him as good as possible. at sprinting. If he makes it over the mountains, that's a bonus, but a lot of other sprinters, won't if he doesn't others won't as well and just just quickly as well i just spoken to michael Moku quite a lot this year and and he's all, who's the lead out man that you know took sam bennett to green jersey last year and has taken bennett and cavendish to um to a lot of victories this year and and he's just got some really interesting insights into how how he makes these guys even better and and it's interesting with those two because they've actually been racing each other since they were about eight years old on the track and in, on the in the madison so they've got a long history together so it bodes well for the future yeah it's really interesting stuff i think a question will be whether or not cavendish can make it to paris through some of these tough mountain stages but honestly if he gets time cut and he has won a stage like mission accomplished, you know, coming in and having the one of the biggest stories of the first week of this Tour de France and like reviving this guy's career, in my mind, is a worthy trade off for him maybe getting time cut on one of these big Pyrenean stages. So good stuff. You can read Jim's stuff on the site right now. Uh, over to you, Saif. You know, you have been continuing with this Unsung Heroes um series where you are interviewing and profiling some of the riders who we just don't ever get to hear from during the Tour de France because all of the focus is on the Matthew Vanderpols and Tadej Pogacar. And you had a story go up this week about Hugo Hula, and you have one going up this uh, later this week about Jacopo Guarnieri and some of the human side of what these guys go through. Let's start with Hula and then go to Guarnieri. I mean, what did you learn about each 
guy and sort of the personal motivations that are driving them at the tour? Well, it's, I mean, doing the series has been really interesting because like you say, you don't really get many opportunities to, to speak with these guys. Um, when you're at the races, you're almost always kind of talking to, you know, the, the guys up in the front, um, you know, perhaps some of the Americans and you don't, you know, there's these, these guys who every day they do their job and they, you know, they do it really well, but we just don't really get an insight into um, what they're like, who they are, um, how they came to kind of be the people that they are in that race on that day. Um, so, yeah, that's it's been really enjoyable. And the riders have been kind enough to kind of talk to me a little bit about their kind of personal lives in, in some cases. And, and with uh, Ugo Ull, the, um, you know, that was that was a particularly kind of, touching an emotional one um because a whole brother died back in 2012 um he was in the build-up to christmas 2012 he was um out for a run and um he was killed by a a drunk driver um who then fled the scene and and who uh went out looking for his brother and found him um which is obviously an awful awful situation um and he said you know initially that the loss of his brother, his younger brother, three years younger than he is, um, nearly destroyed him. But now, now it pushes him on and it kind of makes him do what he does because they used to do sports together and compete together. Um, and, you know, they used to watch the Tour de France as kids every morning because obviously the, the time difference, um, they'd watch it together every morning. But his brother never got to come to Europe and watch the race. And so he really wants to to win for him. And um, yeah, that was just such a um, touching and emotional story. And it's a side that, you know, we wouldn't ordinarily get to see of, of riders. Um, yeah. And this, this year is his best chance for doing that because he's not working for a, a GC leader. Um, yeah. And with, with Jacopo Guarnieri, that was quite interesting. We, we'd set up the interview. I didn't really know what to expect. I knew that he was Arno DeMar's lead out man. Um, you know, I knew that he was quite a good conversationalist, but I didn't really know much about him other than that. Um, and we were supposed to do the interview, I think, at like 2.30 in the afternoon, and we ended up pushing it back um, for half an hour uh, because he had picked his daughter up from school and he wanted to put her to um, to bed for a nap because she'd been busy running around as, as kids do. Um, and we kind of spoke a little bit about how um, he balances his life um as a, a single parent because he's no longer with the, the mother of his child. So he balances his life as a single parent and training to be, you know, a world tour level tour de France rider. Um, and yeah. And how difficult it is to be away from her. And especially when she's, you know, upset, she's only four years old. So um, yeah, that was quite nice. And uh, also she sort of understands what he does, but not quite. Um, so yes, <laughs> he was telling her how, uh, how he didn't, um, how we didn't manage to to win at the Italian Championships, and she said, "Oh, is that because nobody pushed you, Daddy?" And he's like, y "Yes, I guess so." <laughs> it was just really sweet, and it was like it is, you know, normally when you're asking riders about their race results and their targets, this isn't something that you get to talk about either. So it's been a very nice um, thing to do, and yeah, that feature will go up later this week, and there'll be a few more um, of these uh, Unsung Hero features to come over the next few days. I really appreciate you doing that and pulling these human stories out of some of these riders because, you know, like you said, when 
we tend to end up hearing from a lot of the same voices in pro cycling, understandably, because it's the ones who are winning the races and thus getting microphones put in their faces. But, you know, every rider in the Tour de France has an interesting, compelling backstory. And Saiv, you've been doing a great job of finding the personal backstories from riders we don't uh, get to hear a lot about. And Jim, you've been doing a great job of pulling some of the compelling backstories out of riders that we do get to hear a lot about. I mean, yes, we saw Cav win and it's great and there's history and everyone knows about that stuff. But the fact that it's uh, coming after, you know, a complete revolutionize of his training regimen, I think is just a, a really interesting stuff. So chapeau to both of you for the reporting and the listeners can read Jim and Sive's work on velonews.com. And you know what? While you're there on velonews.com, I want you to check out a page, velonews.com forward slash pick. We have this stage winner contest that's going throughout the Tour de France. And every day you can choose who you think is going to win the stage. And if you choose right, we're going to add your name to the sweepstakes to win a brand new specialized tarmac, which is an awesome race bike. And if you choose the winner right, um, you'll be able to uh, get in on that. So again, velonews.com forward slash pick. Check it out going on throughout the uh, entire month. Um, and like that, we've been... We've been doing our Velo games here at Velo News of the Tour de France. I need I haven't looked at our Velo Games page in a while. My guess is that I have not been doing great because most of the riders I chose have either crashed or just aren't uh doing well. Um who, who who's in the lead right now? I think Jim is. Uh, I proudly declare myself the winner. Yeah. Uh, well, the I, I'm the current uh, GC leader over a slim slim advantage over James Stark with 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 Andrew Hood uh, rounding out the podium. So uh, it's, a, it's a close battle, Cl- closer than the Tour de France's GC. That is. Wow, Jim, you are the proverbial Matthew Vanderpool. But let me tell you something, buddy. The mountains are coming. And as we all know, with this race, that's going to change everything. Well, thank you so much. To Jim Cotton and Sai Vaucher, you've been phenomenal co-hosts. We are now going to hear from Michael Woods and Jonas Vingagor. Again, today's episode brought to you by Manscaped. You can get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code VELONEWS, uppercase VELONEWS, at manscaped.com. That's right, 20% off and free shipping when you go to manscaped.com. And use the code uppercase VeloNews. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Uh, Michael, uh, not the ideal start for the Tour de France for you this year. How, how are you? Yeah, certainly a disappointing start for me, especially with the crash. Um, the crash forced me out of the GC, which was one of my ambitions uh, coming into this race. Really felt like I had good legs and felt like I could do something special. But uh, that doesn't mean that my main goal is out of the question. I still have uh, goals of going after a stage win. Uh, I still feel good, and I think that that's still an option. And also, this is a great uh, preparation for the uh, Tokyo Olympics. So uh, those things are still in play, and uh, I can't be too disappointed. So it will change your, your tactics going in. You, know, you won't be trying to stay at the front every day, so that's going to help you to kind of save your legs. Yeah, days. totally. And I think, uh, you know, again, I said I was disappointed to be out of the general classification. But then uh, uh, after yesterday's stage, I finished, got on the bus, and thought maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, yesterday was so dangerous, and I would not have wanted to be in the GC at that point, uh, fighting for position. And so, I, yeah, you're going to see me at the back of the peloton for the next few days until the, the mountains. 
to what happened Saturday, you're caught up in that second big crash, right? Any more crashes since then? Or? No, no more crashes since then. Just the second one. Uh, the second one on stage one, uh, it was 70k an hour. I'm pretty scraped up, but really, uh, when I watch the images, when I think back to the crash, I feel super lucky to uh, be in the condition that I am. It could have been way worse. Now, a lot of debate this morning about who are the, what's the cause of these crashes in our roads. They blame the UCI, they blame ASO, they blame the riders. What's your view of the situation? Uh, I mean, I'm. I, you can't. You can't put the finger on one thing. Uh, this is a culmination of everything. Uh, the technology, we're going so fast. The courses, too dangerous. Riders, too anxious. Directors pushing too much. Uh, but yeah, I think the main responsibility, based off of all the information that's coming in, is uh, coming down to the UCI and the race directors. Uh, there needs to be a bit more thought put into the safety for the riders, particularly with all the new road finisher that's coming in the last few years. Um, UCI particularly wants to make a safer sport, and they're not doing taking the right measures uh, to uh, make a safer sport. Uh, so yeah, like I mean, they, they say they're, they're they're getting rid of the aero tuck and these things, but those aren't the things causing the big crashes. What's causing the big crashes are the nature of the roads, uh, also how many riders are doing these races. Uh, even introducing the introduction of the pro continental teams, I know it's a controversial subject, but you know you're adding quite a few more bodies uh, into the mix with those pro conti teams. Uh, I really think you know we can reduce the, the the size of the peloton and we can uh, make these uh, courses cleaner. Is it true that the riders try to change the safe zone yesterday to kick it out to was it five, eight cases ago? Yeah, it's really it's very true. We uh, proposed it and uh, it was turned down by the UCI. Um, you know, so. That, that's a bit, that's a real uh, source of anger for me uh, is that we we called this we saw this we saw that with 5k to go it was going to be really hectic we would have saved a lot of broken bones a lot of uh, a lot of uh, riders would be a lot healthier today if uh, the UCI just approved it is there a protest this morning like a slow go kind of ride for the first 10k we've heard yeah you're gonna have to wait and see <laughs> <laughs> and just for tomorrow the time trial for you is it gonna be kind of a day off now or are you still gonna to another race day i'm on the grand fondo plan for the next few days until uh we, we hit the mountains which is kind of nice to be in the safe zone but uh obviously it's it's more fun to be in the race so uh uh yeah i wish i was in there but uh i'll be staying safe the next few days thanks guys good to see you bro thanks Yeah, I want to give it a try. Check for training. It shows that you're in very good shape. Does it mean it changes your role in the team? Because you are the highest qualified climber in uh, in the team right now. No, it doesn't change anything. I'm uh, I'm still here to help Primos uh, and to learn uh, for the for the future. So uh, yeah, I'm here for Primos and uh, he has my uh, full support. It's been a crazy tour. What have you learned so far? Yeah, that it's crazy. I mean. Uh, Especially, uh, yeah, the first day and, and the third day was uh, was was quite crazy. I think, uh, yeah, the third day was on small roads and um, made it really really nervous. Some crashes in the end and uh, yeah, then yesterday it was better because we had bigger roads. Um, then we could sit a bit more in the back and then yeah, we just could could relax a bit more. So. And so what did uh, I saw uh, Franz Massa saying something to you when you were uh, over there uh, resting? What did he? Say. Uh, he said it was a good time, so uh, yeah, I'm happy about it. Just that? No, he said it was a really good job, so yeah. And uh, Richard Plugge was also uh, hitting you on the shoulder, what did he say? No, he didn't say anything, he just, uh, yeah, as you said, he uh, gave me a clap on the shoulder. So, uh. Are you encouraged by Roglic's performance today? He's um, ridden very, very well. Does that suggest
suggest that he's maybe recovering from his injuries? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, <laughs> if he would be doing a time trial yesterday, I think he, he wouldn't be doing this good. So, uh, so yeah, I think uh, he's recovering. He's, I think he's getting better and better. Um, and hopefully, I mean, the, the, the mountain stage is... Uh, is coming up, but but hopefully he will be recovering even more. What was the atmosphere in the team when he when he fell? Oh, sorry. What, what was sorry? the atmosphere in the team when he fell? Yeah, I mean we were we were a bit down, of course. I mean he he's our GC hope here. Um, because it was actually a real bad day for us. I mean, we lost Robert, we uh, pretty much crashed hard. Uh, so yeah, it was a real bad day for us. Uh, of course, we were a bit down, but, but yeah, I mean, now it's going better and better and, and the atmosphere was, was already uh, on the way home in the bus, even, yeah, already better again. Sorry, can I say that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, depends on how teams will be racing. I mean, uh, I don't know how, how the situation. Also depends on how the situation will be after today. I mean, if if if, if Pogacar is in in uh, in the jersey, I mean, he, then they will probably try to race it uh, defensively. So I think, and and also maybe uh, Ineos, they will try to do. Uh, yeah, do offensive racing. So, so yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard to to say. I mean, depends on on what the situation is. How do you feel? A lot of the media back home calls you the next Tour de France uh, challenger. How do you feel about that kind of hyper pressure? I mean, I'm. I'm I don't think that much about it. I mean, I take it in my tempo. Uh, yeah, maybe they have expectations for me, but I just take it quite easy. I um, I hope I can do well in the future, but also depends on my development. I mean, uh, I, I don't think I'm there yet to do a, a good GC in a three weeks long race, but, but hopefully I will be there in the future. Kasper said you, uh, uh, said you surprised yourself in Danish. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing good time trials, but but being second, I didn't expect. I think, uh, yeah, that's that's basically why. And tomorrow you're going to be uh, rugby shadow again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.